Good morning. So I'm excited to be with you this morning to continue our discussion on what it means for First Baptist Church of Gray to be for Jones County. And part of being for Jones County means that we're for the next generation. And this weekend is one of those weekends where I find myself extremely grateful to be in the position that I'm in. Because there's a lot of churches that say they're for the next generation, but they have trouble finding volunteers. They have trouble getting college leaders to come back and help out. And I actually had to turn away volunteers for Disciple Now this weekend. Now, if you, if you volunteer and I turned you away, please volunteer again, okay, because we will need you at some point. But that just gives you an idea of, of the church that we have here, that we are for the next generation. And we're talking this morning about what it means to be for Jones County. And I've loved this discussion we've had over the last couple of weeks. I've enjoyed seeing the bumper stickers around gray. I've enjoyed seeing the hashtag number four JC on social media. One thing I didn't realize about that, somebody pointed this out to me, that four uh, JC can be for Jones County, also could mean for Jesus Christ. And that went completely over my head. Did not realize that at all, at all. I'm a little slow to things. I put that on having two kids under four, and it's just sleep deprivation, but here we are. But it's encouraging to see wheels spinning. It's encouraging to see gears turning, and we've had a lot of good conversations with members of the church body who have come to us and said, hey, if we're going to be for Jones County, why don't we do this? If we're going to be for Jones County, why don't we reach out in this way? Why don't we approach this group? Why don't we go to this community leader? And so, I'm excited to see that for Jones County doesn't appear to be just another catchy slogan, that we're putting action behind those words, and we're trying to live it out as a church community. And as a staff, we've made a commitment to practice what we preach in this, so we've looked for opportunities to reach out to our community. And I want to tell you about one of those opportunities that really turned my week upside down last week. Um, Pastor Randy and I were approached by some folks at Wales Primary to come be a part of Welcome Wednesday. If you don't know what Welcome Wednesday is, it's something that the elementary schools in the county do. The first Wednesday of every month, they invite men from the community to come greet students as they come in. The unfortunate reality here in Jones County is a lot of our children come from broken homes. They don't have a lot of strong male role models in their lives. They want men just to come in, give a high five, give a handshake, give a smile, tell a student to have a nice day. It's a really simple way to serve our community, and the kids eat it up. They love it. Okay, so we were all for it. We've done it before, and so we jumped in there, and we did it again during peak flu season. That's, a, that's foreshadowing. That's a key plot detail. We'll circle back to that. And so we get there, and they tell us, we've instructed the kids, no handshakes, no high fives, just give them, a, give them a thumbs up. Don't touch anyone. Just give them a thumbs up. We will bathe you in hand sanitizer when you leave, and you'll be fine. And so I, I followed those instructions for a grand total of about 45 seconds because the first bus pulls up and the first little boy that gets off, he's an adorable little second grader and he's got his hand up high and he is ready to high five someone or something, okay? And he's got that look in his eye like he is going to try to leave a bone bruise on my hand and I couldn't turn it down. So I slap hands with him. Little girl's right behind him. She's got her arms out. She's looking to bear hug someone, she latches onto my leg like a tree, tree trunk, you know, like she's hugging a tree trunk. And so 45 seconds in, I'm just done. I'm, I'm high-fiving kids. I'm shaking hands. I'm giving fist bumps. I'm giving noogies. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm into it, okay? <clears throat> a mere 24 hours later, I immediately regretted my life choices. <laughs> I woke up the next morning with a fever of 102, 
an achy body, and a stomach bug to boot. And I immediately regretted not following teacher's instructions because I should have just done that. And it got worse from there. I passed it along to my family. We share in our family, so I just passed it on down the line. And, and it all culminated into this just awful moment in my life where Lacey was gone. A lot of the bad stories in my life are when Lacey's gone and I'm alone with the two kids. And Parker and Chandler are playing on Parker's slide, and Parker goes up, and she slides down, and I'm laying on the couch, and Chandler climbs up, and I see that her diaper is very saggy, okay? Being the proactive parent that I am, I was like, probably be all right. (laughs) And I just laid there and let it happen. And so Chandler slides down the slide, and she barrels into Parker, and Parker reacts immediately, Daddy! There is something on the slide. (laughs) The stomach bug had reached our youngest daughter. And so I immediately grab Chandler. I throw her in the bathtub. I quarantine Parker into another area. And I call Lacey and I wait for her to get home. And I calmly explain to her that she is never allowed to leave again. (laughs) Under any circumstances. Under any circumstances. And so I tell you that story because I want you to understand that being for others, being for our neighbors, sometimes is going to not be the greatest thing for you. There's great value in serving others, but sometimes it's going to involve you putting yourself behind someone else. And I say this completely honestly, okay? Seeing those kids smile and being a part of Welcome Wednesday, I would do it again, stomach virus and all. I might give a few more thumbs up next time. But there's great value in serving others. And that's what this movement is all about, being for Jones County. And we started this discussion a few weeks ago with a question. What do we want to be known for? When people think of First Baptist Church of Grey, what do we want them to think? What words do we want to come to mind? What reputation do we want to have in the community? Because the unfortunate reality is a lot of people understand what the church is against and not necessarily what the church is for. Especially as Baptists, they can go down a laundry list of things that we stand against, but they can't name what we are for. And so we want to shift that narrative. We want people to understand that God is for them and that we are for them. We are for Jones County. We want to see Jones County thrive because this is where we're planted. And when Jones County thrives, we thrive. When our community is successful, we're successful. We make partnerships in the community. We're building potential bridges to the gospel. So when we say we're for Jones County, we're saying we're in favor of Jones County. We're in support of Jones County. We are pro-Jones County. We want to see Jones County win. And so today, not tonight, we're going to be in Luke chapter 10. We're going to look at the parable of the Good Samaritan. We're going to talk about this idea of being for our neighbors. Before we dive into the text, I want to talk about two biblical truths that we should all believe about the word for. First, we should believe that God is for us. Understand that he loves us unconditionally, that he pursues us relentlessly. That he sent his son to make a way for us. That when Jesus died on the cross, he built a bridge for us back to the Father. He created a path of reconciliation. He bore the weight of our sin. He took our punishment. He willingly died in our place so that we may never experience death. God is for us. Then the overflow from that, because God is for us, we have been created to be for others. 
Because God made a path and a way for us to get back to him. He intends for us to take those directions and pass them on to others. Once we understand and accept the gospel ourselves, we're called to share our experience with others. Because Jesus died for you on the cross, because he showed us love, we should love others. Because he forgave us, we should forgive others. Because he offered us grace, we should offer grace to others. And so as we abound in gratitude for Jesus' work, we should point others in his direction. Our denial speaker was my cousin Adam, who I love dearly, and he is extremely gifted. I think a few of our students would prefer to have him here instead of me, and that's okay. But he put it this way. He said, God gave you a light so that you could become a light for others. And once we walk out of the darkness and into the glorious light, we should grab others and bring them with us. And so that's why we feel strongly about being for Jones County, because we feel strongly that the Scripture calls us to be for our neighbors. And we think Luke 10 just screams this out. So we're going to start in verse 25, and we're just going to work our way through a few verses at the time. So starting in verse 25, Luke writes, And behold... A lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? So we see similar conversations to this one throughout the New Testament. When Jesus bursts onto the scene, claiming to be the Son of God, healing the sick, performing miracles, and preaching this radical gospel to the ancient world, people were curious and some people were furious. There are those that approach him with curiosity. that they could, they could see he was different. They could see that he was special, that he's not of this world. There was something about him. And they'd ask him questions for more information. You, know, you think about the rich young ruler in Matthew 19 that comes to Jesus and says, What good deed must I accomplish to have eternal life? So some were curious about Jesus' gospel message. Others were furious about the way Jesus handled himself. Think about the group that we talked about a few weeks ago when Pastor Andy preached on John 8 who were gathering up stones to stone an adulterous woman and they try to put Jesus to the test and say, okay, so the law says that we should stone her for what she's done. What do you say? Of course, he says, let he without sin cast the first stone. And so the lawyer in this story, you got to put him in the latter group. If you read over verse 25, Quickly, he kind of seems like he's, he's seeking God or he might be searching for God or that he's maybe looking for eternal life. But we'll see as this story unfolds that he's not curious about Jesus. He's furious with Jesus. Verse 25 says he wants to put Jesus to the test. He wants to discredit his teaching. He wants to embarrass Jesus in the public square. You know, he's confident and comfortable in his understanding of the scriptures. And so he wants to walk up on this two-bit carpenter's son from little old Nazareth, and he wants to give him a theology lesson. He wants to take him behind the woodshed in a theological debate. And so he starts with a question, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And when you understand that he's not genuinely searching for an answer with this question, that he's testing Jesus, that he's trying to put Jesus on the spot, you can sort of feel the smugness behind the question. Like, what, what do I need to do to inherit, you know, to inherit eternal life? Now, understand, Jesus, I know the answer. I know how to get eternal life, but I just want to know that you know the answer. 
So what do I have to do to inherit, inherit eternal life? And Jesus is always willing to participate in these conversations throughout the Gospels. And he, he flips the script on him. He says, well, what's written in the law? How do you, how do you read it? What's written in the law? You're, you're a lawyer. You're an expert on Jewish law. You probably have the Torah memorized. What does the scripture say? And then one step further than that, how do you read it? How do you interpret it? How do you apply it to your life? And so in verse 27, the lawyer gives his analysis. It says, and he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So again, the lawyer is familiar with the scriptures. He gives the perfect Sunday school answer to the question. He sums the law up perfectly. He condenses every page of scripture into two statements. Love God, love people. In Matthew 22, when Jesus is asked what's the greatest commandment, he sums it up. The same way, love God, love people. He has the perfect answer to the question. These four words perfectly summarize our calling as Christians, that we should love God, we should pursue him, we should work to grow into the image of his son, and then we should turn around and we should love others. We should care for others. We should minister to others. We should be Jesus in the life of others. We should sprinkle gospel seeds all over this community and everywhere that we go. So the lawyer gives a perfect answer, and Jesus commends him for it. He says, you have answered correctly, semicolon, do this and you will live. You have the right answer, now go live it out. If you love God and if you love people, you'll be in good shape and you will have eternal life. So the lawyer asks another question. And this question, verse 29, is key because this shows us where he's really at. This shows us that he understands the scriptures, but he's not living out the scriptures. That he's looking to justify his disobedience. Verse 29 says, But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Scripture says to love my neighbor, but who is my neighbor? And so now we're starting to uncover his true intention in his conversation with Jesus. Along with putting him to the test, he's looking to justify his understanding of the scriptures. He's looking for a loophole. If you're a parent in this room, you understand what a loophole is. Loopholes are what our children use when they disobey us and then try to convince us that they're not disobeying us, right? That's a loophole. Parker is already a master of loopholes at three years old. Um, Chandler has recently become more mobile. She went from crawling to walking to sprint, sprinting, I think, in a matter of about three days. And she is into everything that Parker's into. She's into her toys. She's into her business. She's into what she's watching on TV. She follows her big sister everywhere. And so once Chandler got started to get into Parker's business, we started to have a lot of conversations about sharing. We had to talk to Parker and help Parker understand, you have to share with your sister. 
And so we're, we would give these presentations about the value of sharing, and then Parker would offer a rebuttal and let us know that she sees no value in sharing. But we, but we, we had these conversations anyway. And one day, again, home alone with the kids, Parker was playing with her toys, and I heard her shout out from the other room, No, no, Chandler, that's mine, that's mine. The Chandler had grabbed one of Parker's Paw Patrol toys, which is the holy grail of Parker's toy collection, and she was putting one of the puppies in her mouth, and Parker was not having it. And so I spring into action and said, Parker, baby, listen, you have to give Chandler something. You know, she's, already, she's on the floor. She's like raking all of her toys into a corner trying to get away from Chandler. I'm like, Parker, you have to give her something, okay? You can't play with all these toys at one time, right? You have to give her something. And so Parker stands up, and she walks across the room to her closet, and she grabs one of her flip-flops out of the closet. <laughs> she places it at Chandler's feet. And she says, here you go, Chandler. And she like looks back at me. There's something. She found a loophole. All I said was, give your sister something. She found the loophole. And so our lawyer here, he's looking for the loophole. He understands that Scripture clearly says that you must love your neighbor, but he wants clarification on who exactly his neighbor is, right? Because he doesn't mind loving his neighbor if it's a certain kind of neighbor. He doesn't mind loving his neighbor if his neighbor you know, talks like him and, and acts like him and believes all the things he believes. You know, he only wants to associate with those who are righteous like him. He's happy. He's happy to fulfill Scripture's calling to be for others as long as they share his beliefs, they share his traditions, they share his opinions, they share his values. So he's twisted Scripture in a way to convince himself that he's okay loving those who are in his comfort zone only. And Jesus uses a parable to help him understand the true scope of what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Starting in verse 30, he tells the lawyer this parable. It says, Jesus replied, A man was going down to Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, When he saw the man, he passed on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, he bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. He uh, he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. Whatever you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? So we have a man walking down from Jerusalem to Jericho. This is a notoriously treacherous path. In the ancient world, it's 17 miles long. It's about a 3,000-foot descend, and it's winding, and it's notorious for having thieves and robbers hiding off in the, in the caves to jump out and grab people. And this is what happens to this man. He is, he's attacked, he's beaten, he's stripped, and he is left in a ditch for dead. And so over the course of time, we have three different men come up on this situation. 
We have a priest, a Levite, and we have a Samaritan. And I want you to understand that Jesus isn't choosing these characters by accident in this parable. The priest and the Levite, they represent the lawyer's theology. They represent those who talk the talk but don't walk the walk. Those who appear to have everything together on the outside, but something's missing on the inside. And these men come up on a neighbor in serious need. They walk into a mess, and they just shift over, and they walk on the other side of the road. But the Samaritan loves his neighbor. The Samaritan cares for the man. The Samaritan runs straight towards the problem. He has compassion for him. He patches him up. He pours oil and wine on his wounds. He places him on the back of an animal, and he takes him to an inn. He clears his schedule, and he stays with him throughout the entire night, tending to his wounds. And the next morning, he pays the innkeeper two full days' wages to continue his care. And he even goes a step further than that. He opens up a tab with the inn and says, if you have any additional cost, you let me know, and I will cover this man. The Samaritan goes the extra mile for a complete stranger. And so Jesus lays out this story, and then he asks a question with an obvious answer. He says, who proved to be the neighbor? And in verse 37, the lawyer answers the question, but he can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. He just says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus tells him, you go and do likewise. So again, the lawyer has the right answer. The lawyer understands who the obvious hero is in the parable. But Jesus encourages him to take it a step further. Jesus encouraged him to go and do likewise, to go walk into someone else's mess. And we have to understand if we're going to truly be for Jones County, if we're going to truly be for other people, we have to be willing to walk into a mess or two. We have to be willing to deal with people who are broken, deal with people who are struggling, deal with people who are sinful. And that's okay because we have that in common, right? We need to be willing to go outside these walls to gather up other imperfect people and to bring them back and introduce them to a perfect Savior. Because God created us to be for others not just for ourselves. We have to aspire to love the way that the Samaritan loves. And there's two things I want to pull out of this story from the example of the Samaritan I want to, I want to close with today. One, if we're going to be for Jones County, if we're going to be for others, we have to be willing to have compassion for others. Scripture says the Samaritan felt compassion when he saw the man in this dire situation. And folks, the unfortunate reality is that many churches lack compassion, especially for those on the outside, especially for those who are different, especially for those who are outcast. And over the last few years, and even longer than that, we've seen our culture in America shift dramatically. We've seen things change rapidly. And the church has struggled to show compassion to that changing landscape. Every church in America understands the solution to the problem. We understand the answer to the question. We understand Jesus is the answer, 
but we haven't been as proactive as we can in getting out into the public square. In a, in a moment in history when the world is desperate for a Savior, many churches have focused inward instead of outward. They've stopped trying to understand conflicting worldviews, and instead they've adopted this us-against-the-world mentality. And, and if we're not careful, we'll start sitting around the table at our churches and saying, well, you know, if they would just do this, if they would just follow Scripture, if they would just come to church at 9 and 6 and then 6.30 on Wednesday and make sure they're youth at every event that we have, then, I mean, they'd be fine. They'd have it all figured out like we have it figured out. It's really simple if they would just do that. And if we aren't careful, we'll start trying to fix the mess without getting too involved, without getting our hands dirty, without getting some germs from some elementary school kids. But being for others requires us to be empathetic towards the situation of others. Now, I have a cousin that struggles with drug addiction. He has since college. His entire adult life, he's been in and out of rehab, and he'll be clean for a while, and then he'll relapse again. And a few years ago, he had spent uh, six months in a Christian rehab center in South Georgia, and he was doing really well. He, he got out of there. He graduated from the school. He was holding a job. He was healthy. Um, he was reading his Bible every day. He was involved in a small group. He was growing in his faith, and he was just doing so well. And then one day, I, I was talking to my dad, and my dad said, by the way, your cousin relapsed again. He was caught shoplifting from Walmart, and when they, when they got his book bag off of him, they found there was some drug paraphernalia in his book bag. And I remember in that moment being just frustrated and, and angry, just having the complete wrong attitude for the situation. But my whole life, I remember watching my uncle love him unconditionally. I remember watching my family love him unconditionally, watching them pray for them, care for him, bend over backwards for him, lend him money, lend him everything that he ever needs to get the care that he needs. And that boiled up in a moment of weakness, and I get, became frustrated. And I said, Dad, how can he be so stupid? How can he keep doing this over and over again? Knowing the way it affects our grandmother, knowing the way it affects his father, knowing the way that it affects our family. And my dad, in only the way that he can, he put his hand up and he stopped me in the middle of my little rant. And he said, son, you will never understand what he's going through. I pray that you never understand what he's going through. He said, son, it's easy to condemn someone who sins differently than you. And because my sins were different in that moment, I was quick to belittle the plight of my cousin. I was quick to judge him because his sins were different. But if we're going to be for others, we have to be willing to withhold judgment. We have to be willing to practice empathy. We have to be willing to share compassion and love for others. And then secondly, 
We need to be willing to make time for others. We don't know why the Samaritan would have been heading to Jericho. We don't know what he had on his schedule. We don't know what commitments he had for that day. But we do know that he put everything else on the back burner to clean this man up, to throw him on the back of his animal, and take him down into town. So we have to be prepared to shift our priorities to benefit others. I had a friend call me a while back and he wanted to grab lunch, and he had been trying to catch up with me for a few months. Hey, man, let's play golf. Let's grab lunch. Let's go to dinner, and I just kept pushing him off. I was busy with stuff at the church. I was busy with stuff with the family, and I just never made the time to get together with him, but this day was different. I could hear it in his voice. He said, no, I need to see you. I need to talk to you. I, I, need, I need to meet with you, and so I moved some stuff aside, and I, I had lunch with him, and when we sat down together and this, this, this friend who I've been putting off for three or four months just starts to pour out every struggle he's currently having in his life. That his job situation's unstable, that his marriage is struggling, that he's, he's having problems with his children. And I sat there in that moment so convicted because I was thinking about all the times that I, I pushed him to the side because of something that I wanted to do. All those times where I could have made time, but I didn't make time. And now my friend is at the point where he's in a crisis that maybe we could have walked through together. And maybe he wouldn't have reached the point that he's at now. We have to be willing to make time for others. We have to be willing to clear our calendars. We have to be willing to put stuff on the back burner. One of my seminary professors used to say, 90% of ministry is showing up. 90% of ministry is just showing up for people, just being there to put your arm around them, let them cry on your shoulder, hold their hand through a difficult process. We have to be willing to get sidetracked. We have to be willing to show up. We have to be willing to go the extra mile for our neighbor. Because church, if we, if we aren't careful and if we're not intentional with our schedule, we'll start to just gravitate towards the people that we, we're comfortable with and we love and we'll just exist inside this comfortable and cozy Bible Belt bubble. But if we're going to get outside of that, if we're going to be for our neighbors, then we need to show compassion for others. We need to make time for others. Because here's the reality. If there's one group of people in Jones County that should be leading the charge, should be carrying the banner, should be out in front of the parade to be for our neighbors, it should be God's church. It should be us. Because we know the love and grace of a God who is for us. And so we should be a living demonstration and a light to a lost generation by being for others. Would you pray with me? Father, I, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the way that it convicted me first and foremost. Father, we know the calling all too well that we're supposed to love others as ourselves, but our natural mentality is to love ourselves as ourselves. So Father, I pray that in 2018 and beyond, that we could encourage each other, that we could build each other up to go out and to truly be for other people. 
that we could make ourselves second so that people can understand that you made them first. Father, I love you and I thank you for this calling. I thank you for this mission. I just thank you for sending your son to make a path for us back to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to have a, a moment of response. I know we ran a little bit over this morning, but I want you to just take a moment before you get back to the real world and just let these words flood your mind. And spend a moment in prayer, spend a moment in worship, spend a moment in front of your Heavenly Father. And we'd always offer you the opportunity, we have an invitation to make two decisions. One, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've never committed your life to Him, we want you to understand that He is truly for you. That He came to this earth for you to provide you an opportunity to walk in relationship with a holy God. And if you're looking for a church family, we aren't perfect here, far from it. But we are actively working to be for Jones County. And if that's exciting to you and you want to be a part of that, we'd love for you to join in with us. So you respond as God would have you respond. Pastor Randy will be down front to receive you. Do that right now.